when you're living in a modern world and you've got set amount of land and whatever else, it has to be easy, right? And so I feel like, while I don't think we have all the answers, I think the direction that we're certainly heading in and aiming to head in is to simplify this. And the reason we've had commercial success, you know, we supply a lot of cruise lines and the reason we've had a lot of success in these commercial environments is that we just, it's an appliance that you just put the food waste in. There's no additive. You don't have to add microbes and liquids. It doesn't increase water consumption. It doesn't use any water at all. It just uses electricity and it's just easy. You know, it's got a set cycle. Um, it turns itself off. And so when we get into the, the home market and the residential market, the premise of like, oh, I just want to put it in there and it's dealt with. Um, I think that's an important factor for people to make it easy for them. And the easier it is, the more successful these initiatives can certainly be. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Every week, I invite you to care more so that together we can create that better future. This week's Be Better Challenge, hashtag Be Better Challenge, which you can follow in social spaces, is specifically about reducing food waste and composting. And in the spirit of that challenge, I'm thrilled to introduce you to a founder of Hungry Giant. It's a clean tech business turning food waste into compostable food stock. Chris O'Brien is an experienced innovator in the waste and recycling industry with several successes in Australia. He moved to the U.S. to expand his U.S. operations back in 2018. With Hungry Giant Waste Systems, Chris provides innovative solutions for handling and management of organic material. They specialize in grinding, transfer, dewatering, and biodehydration systems. So we're going to dig into what each of those mean. And they also offer collection services for both processed and unprocessed food wastes, which we'll also define. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Karina. Well, it's lovely to meet you. And Someone from down under relocating to the U.S. What was that culture shock like? It was a lot. I mean, we, <laughs> we were established a few years prior to me moving here. So I traveled to the U.S. and I, I kind of knew what I was getting into. But it, it is still a culture shock, definitely. <laughs> well, you're in Texas, is that correct? Yes. I'm in Austin, Texas, oh, one. which is a great place to live. But they don't put how bad the, the allergies are in the brochures. So if I start having a sneezing fit today or... <laughs> Or my eyes start watering. It's not that I'm not enjoying myself. It's just the allergies. Yeah. Well, you'll remind me of the insane allergy attack I actually had in Australia. We're going along, I think, what's the southern coast? What is it? The Seven Sisters or something to that effect? Yes. There's the Three Sisters in the Blue Mountains. And then there's the Twelve Apostles on the southern coast, coastline. Yeah, that's it. So the Twelve Apostles. So I was heading through the area on the coast, beautiful, beautiful drive, reminding me of some of the coastal roads in California that we have where there's a lot of erosion and you have these croppings off the coast that are cliff faces kind of surrounded by water. And as we're heading down the coast, suddenly I get the worst allergy attack of my life and literally had to leave my husband at the wine tasting that I dropped him off, get in the car, drive to a pharmacy and get something that's the equivalent of like Claritin in order to quell my insane running nose and itchy eyes 
Yeah, it's the same here. I'm on like a a routine now of just filling my body with sprays and eye drops and <laughs> antihistamines. And if it gets really bad, I have to have an injection in in my butt. So Austin's a great town, but cedar fever really gets you anyway. <laughs> Well, I'd like to get, just as we're getting started in this conversation, and as we dig into things like composting, waste management, can you talk to us about why you even got started in this business and kind of the evolution of what brought you to create Hungry Giant? Well, it's quite a long story, but going back to my early 20s, I've always been entrepreneurial, always looking to solve problems. I wouldn't say I'm a pure environmentalist, but I kind of call myself an environmentalist capitalist. I kind of understand that, you know, for things environmentally to happen in this commercial world that we live in, those environmental ideologies need to be supported by a way to make it work financially. And so I've always had that kind of keen eye on solving problems. And when I was studying and I was also working at a big box retailer in Australia at the time, and I was just the the fill-in guy on a Thursday night, I'd be the back of the warehouse and I'd be loading up cars as they came to pick up their refrigerator or their stovetop or whatever. And part of the process was you'd have to unpack all this stuff. And I just saw the sheer volume of, of trash and waste that was being generated. In particular, styrofoam, expanded styrofoam, you know, that white stuff that they insulate the refrigerators with. And it was just going in the trash. I'm like, man, this stuff weighs nothing. And it's taken up all this space in the dumpster. And then I see the trash truck coming like every day, picking up the trash. And so the idea dawned on me like, hey, I wonder if we could turn this into a recyclable plastic, if we could take it out of the trash, if we could mechanically come up with a way to crush it and reduce volume. And so I started building a machine. I started designing and building a machine that crushed and densified styrofoam and the place where I had this job they were my first customer and I built this machine and it was a massive disaster but we evolved the design we evolved the technology and we ended up coming up with a product that could reduce the volume of styrofoam 90 to 1 and we also commoditized that material so by taking it out of the dumpster we then had the customer compact it and then we collected it and we we then sold it on to recyclers who then turned it back into at the time disposable camera casings and coat hangers and stuff like that. So the concept of volume reduction at the point where the waste is generated and the concept of turning a waste product into a commodity or a resource, that just really lit my fire. And I really found that in my early 20s, that kind of became my purpose. And so I fell into the waste industry. It was just something that happened when I had that idea. And as time went on, these customers were saying, hey, this is great. You're solving our styrofoam issue, but can you work on our cardboard and our plastics? And can you provide other ideas and solutions? And so we kind of became this company that did everything in the waste industry. And back in 2007, I came across a technology out of Korea, which handled food waste at the source. So I didn't invent this particular technology, but what we did was we imported some machines that we found, some technology from Korea. And again, that failed terribly. These machines were not designed for Western diet. They were not ruggedized for application. But the whole premise of this was to turn food waste into a soil amendment or a fertilizer type output. And so I set about re-engineering that equipment, redesigning that equipment from the ground up. And fast forward however many years and lots of gray hairs and stress. And here we are today. Well, let's talk about the tech of what you created with Hungry Giant. What exactly is 
a biodehydrator. I mean, I, I can make an assumption in my mind about how this might work, but I'd love for you to talk about it because the application then moves you into a space where you can actually create multiple uses for what would be this organic material, right? That's right. Yeah. And part of this chatting with you today is, is educating the greater public about composting and understanding that there are differences between digesting or creating a compost. Compost is not derived purely of food waste. Compost is it's a lot of inputs. It's minerals, it's sand and rocks, and it's, and it's browns and carbon and a whole bunch of stuff that comes together to make compost. And so there's a lot of, I guess you can say there's a lot of misinformation out there, especially in the commercial side of things, where people think that compost is the be all and end all. And so we went down the avenue of, of producing equipment that's dehydrating food waste more so than creating a, a compost itself. And there's several reasons that we went down that route and that our technology we think is is a better fit for people that generate waste in commercial volumes and even at home composting is kind of like baking a cake you know you have to watch how much moisture you put in you have to watch your ingredients you have to make sure that you don't put too many browns you have to turn it every so often and so in a business environment or, a, you know, back of a kitchen or a restaurant or a hotel or a, a ship or whatever, these facilities, first and foremost, focus on their core business. They don't kind of want to be making it. They're not a professional composting operation kind of thing. And so our technology focuses on stabilizing the material. So it stops it from creating methane gases it eliminates pathogenic transfer. And I won't get in the weeds too much about the complicated aspects of the technology, but what it does predominantly is you put your food waste in, it rolls it around in a drum over several hours, it dries it out and it heats it to a temperature where pathogens are killed. But it does retain nutrient density in terms of NPK, all the source needs for um, land application or for assisting with growth enhancement of of plants. So for NPK, you're talking about nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. So just for the lay public, like to explain these things. So those are the key nutrients that you mostly feed plants and why compost then becomes something that's usable. Now, some of the challenges of at home or at restaurant composting can be you get intrusion of insects, you might have they get a little too soupy, as you said, you know, it can, you have to control for moisture, it can smell. And so of course, if you're talking about a restaurant, that's the last thing that you really want. You want to keep all those smells down. And your point about pathogens is also quite interesting, especially in these pandemic times <laughs> where people are very concerned about things like, well, will it transfer disease? Or you might even have something like listeria. You hear about these recalls for even things like cabbage or romaine lettuce because there was some intrusion of a bacteria that ended up getting on the food sources and then making people ill. So all of this, I think, is on point. Now, I've seen some countertop uh, composters that guarantee, oh, in you know, so many days, it's completely done. Is that a similar technology? It's a similar, it's a similar outcome, but it's a different technology. So they use air circulation. They don't have indirect oil jacket heating and whatever else, but it's the same outcome in terms of creating a stabilized product that's heated up to a point where it's inert. It doesn't have that microbial activity. If you want to reintroduce it into a compost pile, if you want to blend it, if you want to add it into, it does rehydrate, it does have 
microbes can uh, get stuck into it and start eating and doing their thing. Mm-hmm. But the good thing about our process is in terms of the pathogenic transfer, in terms of that whole supply chain and risk management, it's a line in the sand. Once we heat it to a certain temperature for a certain amount of time, and we know that it's inert, it's very different to compost because compost you've got with open windrows or at home composting, as you said, it can be get soupy at times. You can have too much of one thing. As you keep adding to it, you have varying levels of degradation of the organic material. So you could put a whole pile of food scraps from your kitchen on top of an already mature compost pile. And that changes that whole dynamic because that then has to catch up. It has to break down. Whereas with our process, it's a start and stop. And then you've got multiple options open to you rather than just compost. Now, it would also kill the healthy bacteria that is there as well, correct? Because it just becomes completely inert? It becomes completely inert. But in terms of coliform, in terms of reintroduction into microbial environments, as soon as you reintroduce it into a soil, that's just teeming with microbes. Yeah, and it's fertile ground because it has those nutrients that the microbes are going to want anyway, right? Exactly. Exactly. So one of the exciting things is that, you know, compost has one opportunity to be a product and that is compost. The material that comes out of the hungry giant systems has multiple opportunities. So it can be used for energy recovery because it's got a high burn value. So high calorific value. It can be used as a soil amendment. So it's less trucks, less transport, and it's got a high NPK rating. Uh, We've got even got a customer here in Austin who's collecting food scraps from restaurants and he's running it through our technology and he's turning it into pet food. And he's done all sorts of lab tests and analysis. And he, you know, he's seeing that it's got amino acids and it's got all sorts of good, good stuff in it. So we're literally moving into this era now where commercial operators are looking for higher value use for, for food waste and viewing it as a commodity and a resource instead of a waste, because sending it, putting it in your dumpster and sending it to landfill is just, it's lunacy. And the flow-on effects of leaking trucks and the smell and leachates in landfills that leach into waterways and all that sort of stuff, it's just crazy when this is high-value, you know, material. Yeah. In my local area, I was an advocate for our waste industries to start allowing composting and so from our food scraps. And now, just as of February 2022, they allow you to put all of your food scraps, animal and otherwise, into your compost bin. So that is nice to finally see it happen because then that goes to a commercial operation, which manages that and then it gets used. So for many people, like let's say you live in an apartment, you may not have enough soil around to even put something like that into use. And so composting isn't very practical. I've seen some services and cities and things along those lines where they'll collect your food scraps and people will literally take up just some space in their freezer and freeze them until it's time to submit them to their compost system. Now, are you involved in any projects like that presently as you expand your business? Uh, we are working on residential system at the moment, but you touch on a really important point. Composting whether it be single family, whether it be multifamily, it has to be easy for people. And adding another compost caddy or, a, or another dumpster, another bin just complicates it. For, I don't know if you remember when they introduced the blue bins, the recycling lids and, and from trash and you know, people were flipping out, like, how do I separate and how do I do this? 
it has to be easy. And one of the things that we have been working on from a residential perspective is coming up with ways. So Austin is developing this ordinance. They've got an ordinance for commercial operators to ban that food waste is banned from going into the trash. But they're proposing at the moment an ordinance for multifamily uh, to have composting put in place. And there are parts of the city that have single family composting, you know, and there are private operators that op that pick up compost caddies similar to what you have at your house. The issue is in Texas, when it's 120 degrees, you know, you've got lots of rotting food waste in, in potentially every driveway and it attracts critters and vermin. Yeah, raccoons. Raccoons love that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's an interesting conundrum. And this is why, again, I kind of have a biased view that having some sort of mechanical accelerated degradation of food waste at the point where it's generated is really wonderful for the environment in terms of logistics. It's good to contain it in terms of odor and and methane emissions because, you know, the longer the food sits there, the more methane is, is generated from those microbes. And methane is 80 times more impactful than carbon when it comes to CO2 in the atmosphere versus methane. And we can't draw it down, right? So it has a long residence time before it drifts back to the surface of the earth as a solid product. So, you know, if you're considering the impacts, this is something that I actually also covered in an episode where I interviewed another Australian, Ben Jeffries at ATAC, and he's created clean cooking and efficient energy use stoves, essentially. There is a bioreactor or biodehydrator that he employs as well, where you can turn animal waste into fuel. And ultimately that becomes what is the clean cooking solution because it then takes care of the methane production while also producing a fuel that yes, it does release carbon, but 80 times less bad <laughs> than the methane, right? And while also cleaning up the cooking of our kitchens and some of these areas that may not have other clean cooking options. So they're over dirty fires, essentially using wood and other things that can impact their health because they're inhaling smoke and other fumes while they're cooking. Um, so, I mean, there's all sorts of solutions I think we can head towards. And, and to your point, if we're able to take these food scraps and turn them into something that is inert, what can that material actually be used for at that point, because we know one application can be to the soil soil amendment, but what else? What can be done with this? Yeah, and we kind of started touching on that before, and that's a really, really important point here is that people need to understand that it's not only the reuse options that open up when you stabilize organic material like this, but it's also, and I'm trying not to use industry lingo as much as I can here, but it's in terms of optimizing logistics. People don't think about that emissions impact by transporting wet food waste and and it's heavy it, you know you're picking it up often um, because it stinks and so you have to have those frequent collections we get rid of all of that in terms of the whole supply chain and we short circuit that emissions you know generation but to answer your question i guess in terms of valuable output options we have customers that are uh, that are burning it on on board ships but they're putting it into their incinerators which again still has emissions, but we've stabilized the material 
And what we've found is that because the material is so dry, it's able to help them maintain the operating temperature. And so the diesel fuel and the fuel input requirement is reduced because of the high burn value of our material. And so when they're operating the, this equipment, they're essentially getting energy from it because it's offsetting the energy that they would otherwise have to put in to maintain operating temperature of these incineration systems or gasification systems. So that's a big plus in terms of energy from waste. We have customers that are turning it into a fertilizer. So they go through and they balance pH. They might screen it and remove larger fraction sizes. So it's got use as a fertilizer product, which has a higher value on a per ton basis than compost. And fertilizer costs keep going up too with everything going on in, you know, in Ukraine and whatnot. So, you know, fertilizer, energy from waste, soil amendment, as I said. So there are people that are blending it with compost piles. There are companies that we've got that are using it on ground. So they're not even having it hauled away. They're producing the food waste and then they're land applying it on their grounds, which is incredible. And lastly, creating value-added products. You know, this customer in Austin that I mentioned earlier is also turning it into a pet food. So, you know, compost can only ever be compost, but the, the output from our process has multiple options. And, you know, what the best option is depends on the customer's situation, their location, their grounds. But we do know that we're reducing logistics and transport collection frequency from, you know, anywhere from 70 to 90%, which is impactful. So let's talk for a moment about this dog food, like let's say, because I'm, I'm very curious how you would take something that I think of in my mind as soil or fertilizer and put that into a second application of food. How does that work? Is it, is it just a nutrient amendment or... Or is it more like a kibble? I'm just—it's like a kibble. So they're they're very carefully um, controlling the input. So we're not, you know, when you think of like pet, uh, you know, restaurant scraps to pet food, it's not every restaurant blended. He's got a number of customers that produce a very sequential, predictable output. So you've got like a a ramen noodle bar that has beef bones and beef broth and and noodles, for example. And then you have a juice bar that's got juice pulp and, and all that sort of stuff. And so they've got multiple of our machines and they run effectively an ingredient list into each machine. Then they blend that material, they screen it. Oh, so smart. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, like having those bones go into effect because like maybe it's used as a soup bone or something like that. And of course it's left behind, but that would still have valuable nutrients in it that a dog needs. I mean, if you think about it in the wild, dogs, they eat the whole of the animal. They get a lot of calcium, right? I live near an open space preserve and I see coyote scat and I can always tell the coyote from the dog because it's full of animal hair and bone material. Sometimes it'll even appear white, right? Because of how much bone material is in there. And so to build strong bones, healthy teeth, I mean, we need animal feed to be closer to what the wild counterpart would have in order to, for them to maintain optimal health. So many of the conditions that you see dogs run into where they might have dry coat and things along those lines, hot spots are related to their diet and the junk that we've been putting in their food. And so cleaning that up, but going to food sources that aren't just filler. I, I mean, I think that's absolutely critical. I have an 11 year old dog. She's very healthy, but you know, 
I see a lot in my neighborhood that probably are just getting the worst of the kibble. 100%. 100% right. The natural canine diet was a mixture of whatever they could get, essentially. Yeah, a lot of rodents. <laughs> yeah, and they would eat whatever they could eat. And so, you know, the owner of this company, he's a dog lover as well. And, you know, he's creating bone meal from those bone products and grinding them up and getting the marrow and he's heating it up through our system and that all that stuff's getting into all the fats are rendering down. And, and so it's very interesting. So he then runs it through some equipment that um, forms it into, into kibble. And, you know, my dogs have eaten it. He, his dogs have eaten it and he's now obviously commercially promoting it, but. Okay. So you need to mention the brand now because I'm curious. <laughs> it's called, it's called doggy bag. Doggy bag which is a pretty good name and it's, you know, food, restaurant food scraps to pet food. So I think it's a pretty apt brand. So yeah, Jeff is, is one of the co-founders and a gentleman by the name of Mason, very clever operators. And I'm really proud to have our technology affiliated with this. What I think is the front new frontier of turning food waste into higher value commodity. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to touch on, which again, is getting in the weeds a little bit, but I think it's really important is that everyone at home knows that a lot of cities that they're living in are creating ordinances and mandates to have a compost system mm -hmm. or have a compost collection program. And what nobody is talking about is that the infrastructure already cannot cope. So the, the composters that are out there that are five, 10 miles from the metro area where these cities are mandating food waste recycling initiatives, they're hitting capacity. And they're either going to have to find other ways to create a higher value product, or they're going to have to move further out of town, which is more, more, more miles per pound of food waste. And, you know, one of my colleagues here, the, just the other day showed me um, a statistic somewhere in North Carolina, and it was a graph and the graph had, Hey, you know, here's the, you know, thousands of tons of compost capacity from, from infrastructure providers. So people that operate compost facilities, here's the capacity. And then the graph said, here's the amount of compost collected in that area. And the, the, the amount of compost way, way surpassed the capacity of these commercial operators. And that's happening in California too. I was at the Waste Expo last May and I was at one of the talks there. There's a Waste Expo? There is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course there is, right? It's a huge industry. I mean, it's mainly a junket of people in the industry just wanting to catch up and, and get drunk. So they all are. Let's be real. But, but you know, I mean, <laughs> you get some good stuff out of it. But yeah, I mean, that, even at that talk, they were talking about, hey, we've got 23 facilities. We're expanding to 26. We've got these ones under construction. And those ones that aren't even built yet already have volume allocated at their capacity. That's how far behind they are. So no one's talking about that infrastructure can't cope. And the flow on effect from that is that when you have an oversupply of compost, guess what happens to the commodity value? Mm. The value goes down. And so you've got increasing collection costs, you've got facilities being pushed further out, which means their cost per pound is going to go up, more diesel, more wages, et cetera, et cetera. Then you've got a declining commodity value. So you've got increased supply, declining commodity value. What does that mean? It means that compost is not gonna be the, the black gold that everyone used to refer to it as. And this is where creating a fertilizer or a soil amendment or a value-added product like pet food is the future. And, and this particular company in Austin, again, they're forward thinking, 
and they're putting the money and they're putting the effort into creating IP and and doing the research. And I really think they're the new frontier in terms of turning that food waste into more usable resource. Well, I think I would be an advocate for getting to the point where we have all that amazing compost available to get to a spot where it's commoditized, the point where we can take it and spread it. <laughs> I mean, the reality right now is that we are losing our topsoil at an alarming rate. Um, I also learned recently that our number one export export is actually topsoil from the United States elsewhere. And so if you're if you're looking at on a volume and weight basis, right? And so we're getting to a stage where we have leading thought leaders like Sudguru himself out there talking about the need to preserve and protect our soils and topsoil being one of those that's eroding most quickly. So I'm curious if there's if there's a way to to connect these things long term so that we have something as simple as spreading onto prairies so that we have healthier grasses so that we can have ultimately cattle that free range and, and are able to build more nutrition systems, sequester carbon, keep our grasslands healthy, because getting it all to go back into the soil is, I think, the goal at this point. We call it the drawdown principle, right? Sequestering carbon into soil. Yeah, I mean, again, sequestering carbon or decarbonization is 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 the, the buzzword of the year or, or the last few years. And, you know, I think, you know, this is where government kind of has a responsibility because it's all about incentives. So when, you, when you live in a capitalist society uh, where it has to make sense for that private operator, you know, they might have a huge pile of compost that they've produced, but they're not going to spread it over there for nothing because it costs them X amount of dollars to produce it. That's right. And so, you know, that's where tax incentives, that's where government incentivizations, incentives, I should say, um, are so critical to this process because environmental ideology for it to work has to make financial sense as well. So what are the negatives, if there are any, between what your processing is like in this kind of a dehydrator, a biodehydrator? versus something like a traditional composting where you're turning it or vermicomposting? The one that comes to mind that most people would think of is our system is a mechanical process and it's using energy. Mm -hmm. Having a compost drum in your backyard uses no energy. The downside of energy consumption is offset by the upside of not having methane generation because we're short-circuiting it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our customers... You know, we recommend that they opt for or pay a slight premium for green energy mm -hmm. so that that becomes, you know, a mute point. But, you know, I think in terms of valuable reuse opportunities for the material, that's a plus. And then obviously the, the methane is a plus as well. The only negatives are that, you know, with any mechanically assisted process, there's the, there's the potential that you, you know, you're dependent on a mechanical process. And if those machines break down, there's a high cost involved with repairing or fixing that equipment. Whereas if you you have a ranch or a farm or you have land or you have a property where you can spread that material and just let nature do its thing, then there's no chance that that's ever going to break down. And so, you know, I guess commercial operation has to weigh up the positives and, and negatives. And the same with you know, at home. I mean, there are people that 
um, want those countertop systems that you mentioned before that they they want to reduce the volume and they want to um, you know they they only have pot plants in their apartment for example and they want to use that volume reduced material and they want to put it into their pot plants um, and you'll have other people that have you know a couple of acres and you know their whole setup is going to be completely different so I, I don't think you know our technology is not not a a one shot solution for all applications it's one that can certainly help and contribute and you know it's like the triangle you know first is reuse and resale and food banks and then it sort of flows down from there yeah i have to say i'm chuckling a little bit on the inside here because you said pot plants and i know this is a an australian vernacular because i think we would say potted and and i'm just picturing people growing marijuana oh <laughs> taking the waste from that so well, it's legal now where, where you are so i know they might be growing that too but um yeah i think it's just an interesting difference between how you speak in australia and how you speak here we say potted plants right so you say potted plants all right i'll remember that <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, it's Mary Jane, right? <laughs> All right. So that's funny. I know right? these are just the small differences that can even arise after years and years of being here in the States. It still happens. I still find myself rolling my R's like I when I'm on the phone. Uh, it's different now because we have a camera. But when I'm on the phone, you know, I'll say something and, and I'll be like, beg your pardon. Can you repeat that? I've been here for five years. How do you not understand me? Like surely. But I have to roll my R's and then they and then they get it. Well, at least it's the same language. So there's far less, right? That's true. So I want to understand, at least help us help us picture what this machine actually looks like, how big it is, how noisy it is, how much, how much energy it might use so that we can better understand what current applications are. And then if you're moving into the home, what does that look like? How is that different? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're big stainless steel boxes, essentially. <laughs> to the untrained eye, it looks like a dishwasher. Mm. But obviously, the inner workings are very different. We have small systems for small restaurants. In fact, I think, I think, and I may be wrong, but I think in North America, we have the smallest commercial system available. So starting at 70 pounds per cycle, and then we go all the way up to like 3,000 pounds per cycle. And then on top of that, we have a whole bunch of ancillary equipment that we can offer to support you know, whatever your operation is. So that you've probably got a disposal at home in your sink. Mm -hmm. Have you got one of those disposals? Yeah, I've got a couple. At the moment that goes straight down the straight, it becomes the city's problem essentially. That's right. Mm -hmm. So we have large commercial versions of those disposals or pulpers or grinders, whatever you want to call them. And we have larger ones where it will essentially grind, but then it will spin the water off from the pulp. So it'll separate the solids from the water hmm. and then that pulp gets fed into the biodehydration system to complete the process and so what you have then is you have a consistent particle size and you know some customers are putting in certified compostable packaging so single-use compostable packaging in with the waste is getting ground up and it's going through our dehydration process so that's all fine to put in there you can actually I mean, I see some that say that they're made from corn or whatever, but they look virtually like plastic. Yes. Um, so you have to be careful. There's uh, forever chemicals like PFOS that are a no-no in our eyes. Um, and those sort of cornstarched PLAs or bioplastics, they have a very high temperature threshold. So they don't typically go well through our system. But things like those sort of fiber clamshells and chopsticks and coffee cups, anything that's fiber-based goes really well. Yeah. Through our system. Very cool. 
I recently learned about a company that is actually collecting chopsticks from restaurants, those wooden ones, and basically turning them into products. So they sterilize them and, and all that, right? Because they've had your germs on them, right? And food particles. And they're turning them into some really creative things like cutting boards and um, bowls and, and different things like that. So I'm curious to see where else we can have these innovations crop up with time. Because while a simple solution could be just add it to what is going to be the soil amendment, you know, creating something that can be second use is also incredible. You know, this is all getting us to this kind of perspective of trying to take it from cradle to cradle. So it's raised as food, it then becomes food again, either through the soil or through a secondary use. I mean, that's where our thinking needs to be so that we can emerge from what our present crisis is. I'm here on the central coast of California. We mentioned this briefly in the when we were talking previously. We're flooded. We are getting atmospheric rivers coming back to back. And so a term I'd never even heard before, a bomb cyclone, which hit Capitola and ultimately put the entire little jewel box city underwater. And the waves were pummeling into the streets that we are known to walk through, you know, and just <laughs> so and th these things are coming up with increasing frequency, these climate events. So getting to a spot where we can be much more mindful about our consumerism, about getting to a point where we are actually integrating these cradle to cradle principles into how we construct our business, how we live as a society, what we put in our trash bins and creating solutions long-term that can make it easy for us. Because I have to tell you, I do home composting. I started with vermicomposting. It was really tedious, right? And I was, I'm a little bit of a, um, let's just say I can be a little OCD, obsessive compulsive, right? So I'm like going through the soil, picking out the worms and trying to find all of their individual little egg sacs and keep them separate. And then go ahead and get the black gold and make the tea to water my garden and do all of this. It took me a lot of time to do this the way I wanted to do it with the level of protection for the little critters in there and everything, right? Would be hours. And then I move on to, okay, well, I'm just going to do turning the soil and, and I'm going to get this simple garden, you know, constructed unit that touches the soil and that we have to physically like stick shovels in to turn and we kept that up for another year and a half, two years. I'd get to the point where I, I had more soil than I actually needed. And then I get to the point where I'm like, okay, what are we going to do with the excess? I donated my worms to my friend and I'm, I'm going in looking at what else I can do with the soil. We ended up spreading some of it in the undeveloped part of our land, right? And so I'm the uber green, right? Yeah, you're, you're the extreme. I'm the extreme, but it's not pleasant right? You know, how many times a banana peel starts to smell or, and you get the fruit flies that get into your bucket, whether or not you want them to. And, you know, unless you're taking the compost scraps out every single day, you do get some smell, you do get excess moisture that's created, you do get some methane. And now taking those food scraps and putting them in with all of our yard waste, it's fine. But now the yard waste bin smells like chicken scraps some food scraps, right? Yeah. It's not delightful. It's not. And, you know, I mean, nature's process is perfect and beautiful and, and you don't want to mess with it too much. But when you're living in a modern world and you've got 
set amount of land and whatever else, it has to be easy, right? Right. And so I feel like, while I don't think we have all the answers, I think the direction that we're certainly heading in and aiming to head in is to simplify this. And the reason we've had commercial success, you know, we supply a lot of cruise lines and the reason we've had a lot of success in these commercial environments is that we just, it's an appliance that you just put the food waste in. There's no additive. You don't have to add microbes and liquids. It doesn't increase water consumption. It doesn't use any water at all. It just uses electricity and it's just easy. You know, it's got a set cycle. Um, it turns itself off. And so when we get into the, the home market and the residential market, the premise of like, oh, I just want to put it in there and it's dealt with. Um, I think that's an important factor for people to make it easy for them. And the easier it is, the more successful these initiatives can, can certainly be. Wow. Well, I can't wait for that moment. So when you do have that consumer home unit, um, I want to bring you back on so we can talk about it. Yeah. Maybe you can tr be one of our first trials. We'll send you one. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely say yes to that. As as it stands, I, I talk to my kids a lot about our food waste. We recently adopted three guinea pigs. And so my uh, chick, my kitchen scraps have gone down um, a different composting route of late because they eat all of the carrot tops and the vegetable matter, essentially, that I can come up with, aside from potatoes, which are apparently toxic to them. Really fun fact about guinea pigs, right? Like. <laughs> They can't have... They look like little potatoes with legs. <laughs> they do look like little potatoes. And then you think about where they come from in Peru and such, and you, you think, oh, well, they eat potatoes, right? This is where all the potatoes are. No, they don't eat potatoes. They also don't eat avocado. So I have these few items um, that they can't consume from the kitchen. But for the most part, everything vegetable, they go. They're my little composters now. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Guinea pigs, chickens. If every house had one chicken... Or a couple of chickens, that would be the ideal way to, you know, yeah, naturally spread compost on your grass while at the same time, you know, getting rid of your food scraps. Yeah, I mean, they, they eat everything from banana peels to whatever you'll really put in front of them, chickens. <laughs> totally. We had a, I forgot to mention this, we have a customer in New Orleans um, who's just installed our equipment. It's a smaller restaurant, but they're super green, super sustainability focused. Um, they've built this restaurant that's got like geothermal. There's my office phone. I should have muted that one too. Geothermal wells where they're heating water. You know, they've drilled down and they're, they're heating the facility or cooling the facility. With heat pumps, basically, using heat pump, natural heat, right? Yeah. Um, and out, yeah, that's right. And then outdoors, they've got these little pellet heaters, wood-fired wood pellet heaters. And so they've started putting out dehydrated material through the through the wood heaters and, and burning it as a like a mini fire log, if you want to call it that, in the restaurant. So, and it smells good. Apparently, I, I wasn't expecting that, but it's it's not um, not an offensive smell. So we're on the cusp of a lot of stuff happening that you know, and hopefully this this just becomes the norm. And hopefully, you know, just like the blue bin twenty years ago was such an inconvenience and people didn't want to be a part of it. <laughs> Generally, you know a lot more accepted now and and consumers drive change you know whether it be at, at home or whether it be conscious eating at a restaurant you know and choosing where you dine and working with restaurants that you know have corporate social responsibilities and they are trying to be better restaurants they need to that are caring more and being better yeah that's right love it thank you for bringing in the title of the show <laughs> now i would love for you before we wrap 
to share with our audience how they can encourage, let's say, the restaurants they dine at to use their scraps more responsibly. How can they push from the bottom for a more change at their favorite spots? Well, it's rather um, ironic that you mentioned that. We've, we're in the process of developing this. I probably shouldn't talk about it because it's not launched yet, but we are working on a certification for restaurants where if they have our technology and our solutions in the back of house, normally the patrons would not be aware that the facility is equipped with our technology. And so we're in the process at the moment of developing a certification and we've called it plate to farm, like plate and then a number two farm. Oh, nice. And the concept behind plate to farm is that if restaurants subscribe to this certification, they can then display that on their front door. They can have a certificate that shows that they are certified as a plate to farm restaurant. hundred percent of their food is landfill free um, and that they're turning their food waste into a valuable commodity. Um, you know, and so the, the, the plan would be that these restaurants who subscribe to this would then use the plate to farm logo on their menus. They'd have, you know, maybe a little cardboard A-frame on the, on the tabletop. And so you go in and you know that if you do leave scraps on your plate or if you are full and you don't eat that last potato or the last carrot or the last piece of meat or whatever, you can have that guilt-free dining experience for yourself and know that no matter what happens, that that stuff is going to be collected. It's going to be diverted. It's not going to sit in a in a trash bag. It's not going to rot in a dumpster and, 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 and go into landfill. Um, and so that's something that we're working on. Um, and I, you know, I hope that it takes off and I hope that, um, you know, consumers will, you know, as, as they become aware that there are things like that out there, consumers can, can kind of dine with, um, again, that sort of guilt-free um, mentality, but at the same time, they can also put pressure on restaurant establishments and say, hey, you, why, why aren't you doing this? You, you know, it's almost a duty to be recovering food waste. Wow. I love that. And I have another question I'm asking of those entrepreneurs that are really focused on these sorts of solutions. So what is your dream of the future and how is Hungry Giant part of realizing that dream? Big question. It's a big question. I mean, I think the obvious thing is, you know, I'd love to see technology like ours and even other companies that are competitors to us, you know, um, I'm, I'm of the, of the view that it's an abundant world out there. And if you're adding value and, and doing things that are enriching our um, existence and our experience that everyone can make money and everyone can do well. So I think, you know, the dream is that, you know, we can really come up with practical ways to have technology like ours and others become common knowledge and, and that we can see that it's actually not hard to, care more and be better, do it again. <laughs> and view consumption and view waste as a conscious buying experience. You know, the consumer drives waste. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked since moving to the US and Australia is still very bad, but I'm shocked at since moving to the US, that Amazon era that we live in of just boxes and boxes and boxes coming to our front door and we're guilty of it, you know, but just the amount of packaging and waste and, you know, the way things, I get things from from Amazon, you know, it'll be the size of an AirPod container and it comes in a box this big with all this packaging in it. And I'm just like, okay, I think if we can buy consciously, we can drive, drive down waste because for the most part, you know, we've only spoken about food today and composting. 
But if you look at landfills, I mean, we're, we're still, for the most part, using these things one time. It's a, it's a single use economy. And then it gets picked up by a trash truck and then it gets taken to a hole in the ground, mm. buried. I mean, we haven't really, I mean, there are, I'm paraphrasing, but there are a lot of different recycling initiatives and transfer stations that source separate and, and they take out the high value commodities. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens within that whole supply chain. But for the most part, the amount of waste that we're putting into a hole in the ground is just shocking to me. So my dream is that, you know, I'm only have I'm only, you know, a small player and a small fish in a big sea and and that I hope that our technology and competitors of ours can become more commonplace and that we can have an impact in the context of food waste. But on a bigger level, you know, I hope that technologies are developed to really capture waste going to landfill and that in my lifetime I hope I see energy from waste. I hope I see, you know, landfills as something where we just look back at it and go, how did we do that for so long? How did we think that consuming so much on this side and then sending it to landfill was a great idea? And the part of the problem is it's just out of sight, out of mind. You know, if any of your listeners went on a landfill tour, one, they'd probably dry reach and vomit most of most of the time because it smells so bad, but you just do not realize the amount of waste on a per capita basis that we create. And even people like you and I who are trying to reduce our waste and trying to reuse things and trying to be, you know, we still have an impact. And then there's people that just don't even think about it. You know, it's just like, well, I don't care. It's in the, it's in the container now and it's someone else's problem. I hope that changes. I hope society changes the paradigm and I hope people start to be more responsible because, you know, I've got three young daughters and, you know, one, one of the ideologies that plays on my mind is what is this world that they're going to grow up in, you know, not only in terms of like, you know, AI and all that stuff that's happening at the moment that's kind of freaking me out. But, <laughs> but environmentally, we are but temporary custodians of this pale blue dot. Yeah. Well, Chris, I have to say I completely agree with you. Some of my earliest memories are of visiting the dump with my dad because he would be taking something that broke on the farm essentially there, right? And there's nothing in my mind that's more awful than the smell of a rotting orange. It's just, I mean, there are certain things in my life that I don't think I'll ever forget. And the smell of a dump with a lot of food waste is just atrocious. So if we can turn that into something else, these the scent of dumpster juice could go away doesn't have to be our reality. It can smell clean. We can have much less waste. We can create a better world. And I also want to mention, because you brought up AI, I got the chance to interview Mo Gaudat, who wrote the book Scary Smart. He was the Google X leader at Google for many years, forgetting his exact title and everything else. But it's a book called Scary Smart and how we can actually teach artificial intelligence to be something that's better for humanity as opposed to something terrible. It was a great interview. And that episode aired about a year and a half ago, I think it was one of my earlier episodes. So I'll have to listen to it. And I've just written down the name of the book, because I'm certainly I'm on the side of like, you know, the creative arts and and journalism and script writing and research papers and all of the stuff that you know relies on the human brain I, that's where I'm, I'm airing on the fearful side more so than the reassuring side of what it how it can benefit society so i'm definitely going to read that 
book and, and listen to your podcast. No, he's an incredible individual. He actually has his own podcast too called Slow Mo. Very good podcast. He interviews really interesting people. Uh, he's appeared on all sorts of top tier podcasts as well. But his argument about what can be accomplished with AI versus how it could turn into something terrible is, I think, very understandable and relatable to people. He puts it in a, um, a sort of language that helps you understand the responsibility we have to what AI will become. And AI will feed solutions. AI will probably invent solutions to how we handle waste that we haven't even thought of yet. So I know, I know. That's where things are going. Yeah. I mean, I say it's scary and Scary Smart is a fantastic title for a book because that literally is people are, are scared because it's something I like when the internet started it's like the industrial revolution people think that you know we're going to just be made redundant the difference about this though is that you know the beautiful imperfection of the human existence is that we are flawed and and that we we have this um, intuition and soul and we have this creativity and i don't know how ai can replicate that ever but you do look at some of the artwork that that ai is creating and you look at other stuff and it just blows my mind absolutely blows my mind about what the future is what how is it going to look so i'm, I'm going to listen to that book and sorry listen to, read the book and listen to the the podcast fantastic now where should people go to learn more about everything hungry giant is it just your website is that where you want to send them yeah we are typically very bad at marketing um <laughs> so we're not we're not hugely prevalent on social media mm. but we should try and improve that i mean, talking to you today is a, is a great first step but they can find us on our website. It's HungryGiantRecycling.com. HungryGiantRecycling.com. I like that you're keeping the word recycling in there because you're recycling food, essentially. So that's fantastic. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining me today, Chris. Is there a closing thought you'd like to leave our audience with? No, I've really enjoyed this chat, Karina. Thank you so much. It's really fun. Now, I'm going to go ahead and mention a few reminders for our audience here. As we close today's show, I did launch Be Better Challenge. That's a hashtag campaign in January this year with the new year. So every Monday, I am posting a new Be Better Challenge. And this week, those of you that follow on social already know that we have been really on this topic of waste management, recycling, and things along those lines. And a couple weeks back, I actually had the opportunity to host my first fundraiser as a part of this Be Better Challenge. So I want to point out again, anybody who is listening to the show, that you can go and make a contribution to Little Hill Sanctuary through that Facebook fundraiser, or you could even create one of your own. And this is something that I just want you to think about in the day-to-day, -day because while I may not love all aspects of social media, while I may not agree with Meta or Facebook, I do like that they cover the 3% charge that you would typically see from a credit card donation to any charity. I decided to go ahead and start a recurring donation to Little Hill Sanctuary to help them out in their time of need. I was blessed to know that that fund is being matched by another generous donor. And I know that Facebook is taking care of that 3% fee. So 100% of the money that I am putting forward into this every month is going directly to do the good work that Little Hill Sanctuary is doing. So take a look at that. And I also want to implore those that listen to the show to write us a review. Now, this does a lot for us to help us emerge on the charts, reach more people. It adds credibility to the show. 
And so while we, you know, I have this inner goal of reaching a hundred reviews, we're in the sixties, I believe now. So if you could just go to Apple podcasts and write us a review there, that would be phenomenal. There are instructions on how to do this on our website too. So visit caremorebebetter.com. You'll get the complete transcripts to this show, resources you won't find anywhere else. You'll also see the video version and the audio version, links to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. And also, of course, a link to the fundraiser campaign. Now, thank you all now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better. We can even solve our waste problems, turn our food into something new and regenerate earth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.